0: Go ahead and open your Bibles this morning to Daniel, Daniel chapter 9, verses 24 to 27, and also if you could put your finger in Matthew 24, verses, verse 15 as well. So Daniel 9, we'll read first, Matthew 24, verse 15, second. So if you open up to Daniel somewhere just before the New Testament, in the middle, uh, middle-ish of your Bibles... And we are going to look at verses 24 to 27. Then we will flip over and look at Matthew chapter 24, verses 15 and 16. And if you are able, would you please stand with me for the reading of God's holy, inspired, inerrant, authoritative, and sufficient word this morning, starting in Matthew, Daniel chapter 9, verse 24. And then going to Matthew chapter 24. Seventy weeks are decreed about your people and your holy city. To finish the transgression, to put an end to sin, and to atone for iniquity, to bring in everlasting righteousness, to seal both vision and profit, and to anoint a most holy place. Know therefore and understand that from the going out of the word to restore and build Jerusalem to the coming of an anointed one, a prince, there shall be seven weeks. Then for 62 weeks it shall be built again with squares and a moat, but in a troubled time. And after the sixty-two weeks, an anointed one shall be cut off and shall have nothing. And the people of the prince, who is to come, shall destroy the city and the sanctuary. Its end shall come with a flood, and to the end there shall be war. Desolations are decreed. And he shall make a strong covenant with many for one week. And for half of the week he shall put an end to sacrifice And offering, and on the wing of abominations shall come one who makes desolate, until the decreed end is poured out on the desolator. Flip over to Matthew, chapter 24, verse 15. So, when you see the abomination of desolation spoken of by the prophet Daniel, standing in the holy place, let the reader understand, then let those who are in Judea flee to the mountains. This is the word of the Lord this morning. Thanks be to God. You may be seated. So, as you no doubt figured out as we... Come this morning to Matthew chapter 24, verse 15, we, come, we arrive at one of the most speculated about texts in all of Scripture, the abomination of desolation spoken of by the prophet Daniel, which Jesus here warns his disciples and his readers to be on the lookout for. So let me just say from the outset, this is going to be a highly informational sermon this morning. As we explore this particularly Jewish concept, we will be considering some dense and difficult theological concepts. We are going to, this morning, wade through some deep theological and prophetical waters. And my hope is that we can work through these, describing and explaining the history and the background and the prophetic word in an understandable and an intelligible way. So let's buckle up and let's get going. Now, as we attempt to explain this text this morning, I want to first explain the convictions that I hold when it comes to interpreting and applying the scriptures. Scripture must be understood by applying what we call the historical grammatical method of interpretation. Now, that's a big and fancy way of saying this. The first thing that one ought to do when trying to understand what Scripture says and teach what Scripture says is to discover what the biblical author himself meant and intended when he wrote the text. Because the text cannot mean to us what it didn't mean to the person who wrote it. That's how we wade into much danger. So what was in the mind of the author? What did he mean when he wrote under the inspiration of the Spirit of God? Because again, one of the principal rules for interpreting Scripture for us in our day and for all the ages of the Christian church is that a text cannot mean now what it didn't mean to the person who wrote it. That is a cardinal rule in the interpretation of the scriptures. So as we approach the text spoken, of, spoken by the Lord through the mouths of the prophets here this morning, when I approach these texts, when we hear the prophets speak about such things as Judah, Jerusalem, Zion, the holy place, the temple, we are to understand those words to be referring to Judah, Jerusalem. Zion, the holy place, and the temple, proper or literal. Now, some might ask, well, is there any greater fulfillment of these texts then? Yes. This does not mean by literally interpreting the words of the prophets that those words cannot have some greater fulfillment attached to them, something that is unexpected to the prophet who wrote it. By many of the Old Testament prophecies do indeed have greater spiritual fulfillments in them. Here's an example of what I mean. In Matthew chapter 2 verse 2, Matthew writes about Herod murdering all of the children in Bethlehem two and under in an effort to kill Jesus, who the wise men revealed to him is the king of the Jews. And the fact that there was a king of the Jews born meant that there was a threat to, to Herod's rule. And so we read this in Matthew 2.2, 2, As he asks the wise men, or the wise men come to him and ask, Where is he who has been born king of the Jews? For we saw his star when it rose, and we have come to worship him. So then Herod kills all of the children, two and under, because the wise men didn't return to tell him where the child was. They actually went on their way. And in Matthew 2, verses 17 and 18, we read this. Then was fulfilled what was spoken by the prophet Jeremiah. A voice was heard in Ramah, weeping and loud lamentation. Rachel, weeping for her children. She refused to be comforted because they are no more. So here Matthew notes a greater fulfillment of Jeremiah's words. But when Jeremiah wrote these words centuries earlier, he was speaking to the literal grief that he witnessed from Jewish mothers after Babylon conquered Jerusalem. The weeping and the wailing of the mothers who watched their sons being taken captive and conscripted into the armies of Babylon... Mothers who watched their sons being forcibly removed from Jerusalem, loaded up onto caravans and sold into slavery, being scattered throughout the Babylonian Empire, or even worse, being executed before their very eyes. Either way, families were torn apart. These sons were never seen again. And Ramah was a town along the road that was taken by the captives as they were carried away from Jerusalem to Babylon. Ramah was the place where Rachel, one of the founding mothers of Israel, was buried. And so now, as the captive sons of Israel filed past Ramah, they filed past Rachel's grave, and Rachel here is used as a personification of all the grieving mothers in Israel, mourning the death of Israel's sons. And now, once again, in Herod's day, that very road that connects Bethlehem and Ramah On that road, the sons of Israel are murdered by the tyrant Herod. And once again, Rachel, personifying the grieving mothers of Israel, weeps over the death of her sons because they are no more. This sort of immediate fulfillment, immediate literal fulfillment, followed by some sort of greater spiritual fulfillment, is found all over the Scriptures. And it ought to give pause to all of us in our own day, who far too easily gloss over or deny literal fulfillments of the prophetic words that God gives through the prophets in Scripture. The Lord speaks His prophetic words to a people through prophets, and He will fulfill His words as He spoke them in a literal manner. I like to explain it this way, and some of you will probably have heard me say this, because I use it all the time. Suppose I came to you one day and I said, Hey, hey. I need to borrow $1,000. Can you lend me $1,000? If you give me $1,000, I promise you that I will return it to you in a week. So you lend me the $1,000, you come back in a week, and when you come back to me and ask, can I have my $1,000, I say to you, "Um, I didn't mean that I would literally repay you, what I meant is that I would spiritually repay you by giving the $1,000 I promised to you to somebody else. Or what I meant is that I'd repay you with a spiritual 1000 Here, let me give you some valuable insights for life that are worth more than a 1000 Like, if you ever go back in time, buy Apple stock. Would you consider yourself paid? Would you consider my promise to you fulfilled? If the $1,000 was not put in your hand. Of course not! You'd be standing there like... But even so, there are many who think this way about the promises of God to the nation of Israel. That God, the God who makes a number of promises to them will not fulfill them to them. But instead, He sets aside those promises, He sets them aside and from... Away from Israel and showers them on us, the church. Which, if you think about it, actually makes a mockery of God's promises because it portrays God as one who actually doesn't fulfill his word as spoken. It reveals one God as one who cannot actually be trusted to do what he says that he will do. And if that is the case, then how can any of us here and now, truly, firmly hold to the promises that God has given to us in the New Testament? If God is not a God who is true to His Word as He speaks it, as He gives it to His people, where does that leave you and I? Can we trust that when Jesus said, I go to prepare a place for you and I'm going to come back to take you to be with me where I am, that He's actually going to accomplish that promise that He made to us? For these and other reasons, when we read the promises of God to the nation of Israel in the Old Testament, we must read them as written in a straightforward manner and seek to understand them as the writer understood them and believe that all of God's promises come to pass as the Lord himself has spoken them because... The God that we all serve is a God who speaks the truth. He is a God who cannot lie. He is a God who does not and will not fail to accomplish what His Word has declared. He does not lead us to believe one thing, only to turn the tables and do something else. Such readings and interpretations of the Word of God are rejected and dismissed by the pastors of Winona Gospel Church, by the elders of Winona Gospel Church, and by the association in which or of which Winona Gospel Church is a part. Now, to be fair, I understand why some people would rather spiritualize these promises, because much of the end times craziness has come from those in my camp. Those who understand the literal promise the promises of God to be literal are usually the ones who swing the pendulum way too far and start speculating about dates and identifying certain nations and certain people as antichrist or those types of things. We are the ones who tend to write the fictional novels about the end times which are just that, fiction and bear little to no resemblance to what God's Word actually teaches about the end times. And those novel series can get up to 16 volumes, just don't read them. So with that in mind... As we work through our text this morning, as we reference different prophets and prophecies to help us understand what is meant by the abomination of desolation spoken of by Daniel, we do so as a church and as a people who are striving to read and interpret Daniel as Daniel would have understood what he was writing to mean. Before we attempt to define it and explain it, let us consider where we have been. What is the immediate context into which Jesus speaks this warning about the abomination of desolation? After denouncing in Matthew 23 and condemning the religious leaders in Jerusalem for their proud, their arrogant, and their rebellious spirit, for their ongoing refusal to repent of their sin and return to their Lord in faith, for their intentional blindness as to the identity of the man who is standing before them on that day, Matthew tells us Jesus left the temple. And as Jesus walked away from the temple, on this day, His disciples walking with Him were impressed and amazed by the architectural marvel that was the temple in that day. By the exquisite design, by the artistry of the buildings, by the gigantic stones that comprised the temple complex. Stones of such a size that we still don't know how they were put together and put on top of each other. And as they were walking by the temple, they were pointing all of these things out to Jesus with mouths gaping wide open in awe. And Jesus responded to them, responded to their astonishment at the beauty of the temple by saying this in chapter 24, verse 2. Take a look at it. Just flip your eyes up. Just a few verses. You see all these, do you not? Truly, I say to you, there will not be left here one stone upon another that will not be thrown down. In other words, the day is coming. It is coming soon. It will come to pass within this generation. A generation, biblically speaking, meaning 40 years. As Jesus makes clear in chapter 24, verse 34. When this temple as monumental and as magnificent as it is, along with this city and its inhabitants, there is coming a day soon when it will be so thoroughly destroyed that even these humongous stones that you are so impressed with will be thrown down so that not one of them will remain on top of another. And as Jesus spoke this prophecy to the disciples, no doubt they were shocked to hear it, but at the same time, they understood that such a thing must happen in order to usher in the end of the age. For the average Israelite in Christ's day, which included these twelve disciples, the devastation and the desolation of Jerusalem and the temple were closely and inseparably linked to the immediate, near-at-hand end of the age. And so as they hear Jesus tell them this, that everything is going to be destroyed, that the temple will be raised and demolished their mind starts racing immediately to the next logical question that we see in chapter 24 verse 3 tell us when will these things be and what will be the sign of your coming and of the end of the age When will the stones of the city and the temple be thrown down? How soon after will you return to rebuild that temple and reestablish the Davidic kingdom that that the Lord has promised to our nation? And what will be the signs that point to your return and the end of the age? And as we learned last week, to understand the disciples' mindset as they asked this question, we must recognize how, recognize how they perceived and understood the words of the prophets. When you read the prophecies of Isaiah and Micah, for example, it seems as though the destruction of the temple and of Jerusalem would immediately proceed and signal the return of the Lord to establish His promised messianic Davidic kingdom. So that phrase, messianic Davidic kingdom, That phrase means a restored kingdom over which Messiah, Jesus Christ, rules from a throne in Jerusalem, and his reign issues in a period of unprecedented peace, unprecedented prosperity, and rejoicing for ethnic Israel and the world. It is this time spoken of when you read things in Isaiah like, the wolf will lie down with the lamb. It's during this time. You can see this, for example, in uh, Micah chapter three, verse twelve. We looked at it last week, but let's look at it again. In Micah three twelve, we read this: "Because of you," that means rebellious, idolatrous rulers of the house of Israel, as we read in Micah three one. "Because of you, Zion will be plowed as a field; Jerusalem shall become a heap of ruins, and the mountain of the house, meaning the temple, will be or a, a wooded house, a wooded height." In other words, the Lord had already decreed centuries earlier the destruction of Jerusalem and the destruction of the temple through the prophet Micah, that the city would become a heap of ruins and the mountain of the house of the Lord would become a place where trees would grow. And why would trees grow? Because the temple no longer stands there. And this decree of the Lord through Micah is then immediately followed up by these words in Micah chapter 4, verses 1 and 2. It shall come to pass in the latter days that the mountain of the house of the Lord shall be established as the highest of the mountains, and it shall be lifted above the hills, and the people shall flow to it, and many nations shall come and say... Come, let us go to the mountain of the Lord, to the house of the God of Jacob, that He, the Lord, may teach us His ways, and that we may walk in His paths. For out of Zion shall go forth His law, and the word of the Lord from Jerusalem." So you see, the Lord revealed through Micah the destruction of the city and the temple and then the reestablishment of the city and the temple. And it was, when the city and the temple is reestablished, at that point the nations will flow to it to hear and be taught the ways of the Lord. And as you look at the prophecy, it seems to indicate, at least from one angle, a rather rapid fulfillment of these promises. The destruction of Jerusalem and the temple will be immediately followed by the reestablishment of that temple and the nations streaming up to it. At least that's how you, would, you could read the prophecy of Micah. But as Jesus reveals to his disciples in Matthew chapter 24 and 25, that's not actually how it works. While they expect... The prompt and speedy and swift return of Christ and the founding of a kingdom that is greater than that of the nation's golden years under King Solomon and David. While they might expect the soon returning, the return of Jesus and the end times, quite soon, when the nations will flow to Jerusalem to be taught by the Lord, a time when the nations will no longer rage against each other and against the God of Jacob, the truth is. Jesus reveals something they did not expect. An intervening period of time. An interval that Jesus called in Luke chapter 21 verse 24, the times of the Gentiles. And during this time of the Gentiles, far from being the city to which the nations will stream in order to learn the ways of God, Jesus said the city will be trampled underfoot by the Gentiles. So many today will call this interval or this period of time in between the destruction of the temple and the end of the age, they call it the church age. The time wherein our gracious and merciful and compassionate Lord gathers to himself, according to John 10, verse 16, the sheep that are not of this fold... Our great and glorious God's plan in and for creation is not simply to save the nation of Israel proper. It's not simply and only to save ethnic Jews, but it is to call for himself a people from every tribe and every nation and every tongue and every language. And according to Jesus, the Father has given us to his Son a people and the Son has come down from heaven to bring all of them in. John chapter 6, Jesus said this, All that the Father gives to me will come to me. And whoever comes to me, I will never cast out. For I have come down from heaven to do the will of him who sent me. And this is the will of him who sent me. That I should lose nothing of all that he has given me, but raise it up on the last day. For this is the will of my Father, that everyone who looks on the Son and believes in Him should have eternal life, and I will raise Him up on the last day. So included in this giving of a people to the Son are both the sheep of ethnic Israel, the remnant of the sheep of ethnic Israel, and sheep from another fold, according to Jesus in John 10. There are two flocks that are being brought together as one, According to John 10, 16, Jesus said this, I lay down my life for the sheep, and I have other sheep, meaning the Gentiles, that are not of this fold, meaning Israel. I must bring them also. Notice that also there. I must bring them also, along with ethnic Israel, also, there's this other sheep. I must bring them also, and they will listen to my voice. So there will be one flock and one shepherd. So in this church age, where the sheep not of the fold of ethnic Israel are brought in, these times of the Gentiles will not be quick from our vantage point. As the intervening time between the destruction of the temple and the return of the Lord after the abomination of desolation spoken of by Daniel stands in the holy place, it will not happen according to the expectation of the Jews who are speaking to Jesus on that day. But instead, as we know, because we are sitting here 2,000 years later, that this age of the Gentiles has spanned a period of almost 2,000 years, and it will continue for a period of time still as of yet unknown to us. The Apostle Paul, or Peter, because in those days people started making fun of the Christians because Jesus was taking what they considered to be such a long time in his return. There were scoffers and atheists who, used, who insulted the Christians with questions as to why the Lord hasn't returned yet because the expectation was that he would return quickly. Peter would say to them in 2 Peter 3, do not overlook this fact, beloved, that with the Lord one day is as a thousand years and a thousand years is as one day. The Lord is not slow to fulfill his promise, as some count slowness, but is patient toward you not wishing that any should perish, but that all should reach repentance. So you see that the Lord is patient. And this age goes on because He is calling in the sheep from another fold. He's calling us, you and I, here this morning, in. However, there will come a day when this age does come to a close. When the times are fulfilled, when the days conclude, and this is important, when the lord resumes his plan to save his chosen people israel now you might ask yourself how did the how did the israelites miss all of this how did the disciples miss this how was all of this unknown to them until jesus explained it to them well, many commentators will actually explain the Jewish inability to understand and interpret the timetable of events by picturing Old Testament prophecy as a mountain range. A few years back, I was blessed to travel to Banff for our denomination's annual national conference, and if you've ever been to Banff, you know that the mountain ranges, that you look at the mountain ranges from your balcony, they are absolutely Incredible. And as I stood on the balcony of my room examining them and taking in their majestic beauty, when I looked straight at those mountains, I could see a number of high peaks and low peaks, some of them smaller, some of them lower, some of them larger, some of them higher. And from my vantage point, looking straight on, all the various peaks seemed to make up one mountain, one massive, unbroken mountain. That's from this vantage point. But if I were to take a walk and move to the side and look at the mountain range like this, rather than from head on, I would see that they're all different mountains actually separated by miles of terrain in between each one. So the Jews read prophecy much like one who looks straight on at a mountain range, unable to comprehend and see the distance that exists between those mountains. Instead, the Jews saw all the mountains smashed together as one mountain And when Jesus arrives, he helps the disciples to to see the prophetic pronouncements from the side view so that they could take note of and see the long intervals and the ranges and the valleys that exist, the space that exists between each mountain. See, they had, like every generation before them, looked at mountain peaks without ever considering that there might be space in between each one. Without recognizing that there are valleys between the fulfillments of the prophetic pronouncements. So let me give you an example of this. Zechariah chapter 9, verse 9 reads like this Rejoice greatly, O daughter of Zion. Shout aloud, O daughter of Jerusalem. Behold, your king is coming to you. Righteous and having salvation is he, humble and mounted on a donkey, on a colt, the foal of a donkey. Now we know, according to Matthew, that this prophecy has been fulfilled. It was fulfilled, according to Matthew, during the Passion Week, when Jesus entered in to Jerusalem on a donkey. You can read it in Matthew chapter 21, verses 4 and 5. When Matthew says, this took place to fulfill what was spoken by the prophet saying, say to the daughter of Zion, behold your king is coming to you, humble and mounted on a donkey, on a colt, the foal of a beast of burden. But listen again to Zechariah chapter 9, this time with verse 10, right coming right on the heels of it. Rejoice greatly, O daughter of Zion. Shout aloud, O daughter of Jerusalem. Behold, your king is coming to you. Righteous and having salvation is he, humble and mounted on a donkey, on a colt, the foal of a donkey. I will cut off the chariot from Ephraim and the war horse from Jerusalem and the battle bow shall be cut off and he shall speak peace to the nations and his rule shall be from sea to sea and from river to the ends of the earth. So, if you look straight ahead at Zechariah chapter 9, verses 9 and 10, you can see how the disciples might conclude that the arrival of Messiah would immediately lead to the Messianic kingdom when the Messiah's rule shall be from sea to sea and from river to the ends of the earth. But as you turn it sideways, you see that the peak of verse 9 is quite distant from the peak that is verse 10. And there's a large valley, a large span of time between the fulfillment of verse 9 and verse 10. The same is true for the destruction of Jerusalem and the return of the Lord to establish His earthly kingdom in Jerusalem. Whereas the disciples saw the two events as twin peaks on the same mountain range, Jesus revealed to them that much like Zechariah chapter 9 verses 9 to 10 there're two different peaks with an interval in between. And so as Jesus answered their question about when will these things be and what will be the sign of your arrival and the end of the age, Jesus begins his prolonged answer. The answer to this question takes up the fullness of chapter 24 and the fullness of chapter 25 of Matthew's gospel. He begins the answer to their question with this exhortation in verse 4. See to it that no one leads you astray. And he proceeded to inform them about the unmistakable and necessary signs that will characterize the valley between the mountains. The times, the interval between the demolition of the temple and the return of the Lord Jesus Christ. And he said this, there will be many who attempt to deceive you And mislead you. There will be wars and rumors of wars. Nation will rise up against nation. There will be famines and earthquakes rocking various regions of the earth at different times. Christ's followers, Christ's children will be hated. They will be betrayed. They will be persecuted by all for their unshakable commitment to Jesus. False prophets will continually crop up and lead people astray. Lawlessness will increase and the love of the multitude will grow cold and Jesus warned the disciples about these things because they weren't prepared for these realities. They didn't see the valley that, between Jerusalem's destruction and Christ's return. And so Jesus warns them, it's not going to be that I return immediately to establish the kingdom, but instead you must endure. That's why Jesus exhorts them in 24 verse 13 to endure because, he said, the one who endures to the end will be saved and to continue proclaiming the gospel 24 verse 14 throughout the whole world as a testimony to all nations and then the end will come and now as we come to verse 15 Jesus now calls their attention to the future tribulations that will come when the times of the Gentiles have concluded and the Lord resumes His plan, resumes His agenda to both dispense His justice upon and to save the elect remnant from His chosen people, Israel. He begins by reminding them of the word that was spoken to Daniel by the angel Gabriel, saying, When you see the abomination of desolation spoken of by the prophet Daniel standing in the holy place, let the reader understand, then let those who are in Judea flee to the mountains. So whatever this abomination of desolation is, Jesus tells us that the prophet Daniel describes it. The prophet Daniel spoke about it. And so if we go back and search the book of Daniel, we will see... This abomination or transgression that makes desolate is referenced four times in the book of Daniel. In chapter 8, chapter 9, chapter 11, and chapter 12. But the clearest word is found for us in Daniel chapter 9, which we read earlier. So if you flip to Daniel 9, we're going to spend most of our time in conclusion there. In order to understand what Jesus reveals in Matthew 24 he makes it clear that we must be familiar with the prophetic word that was revealed to Daniel. Now, we know Daniel is described in chapter 1 as one of the best and brightest in Judah during the days when Judah was besieged and sacked by the Babylonians. Daniel chapter 1 tells us that he was a young man without blemish, of good appearance, skillful in all wisdom, endowed with knowledge, understanding, learning, and competent to stand in the king's palace. More than that, as you read through Daniel's, the book of Daniel, you'll see that Daniel was a courageous man who over and over again refused to defile himself with the idolatrous and sinful deeds of Babylon. And for his endurance, he was thrown into a fiery furnace. He was fed, or He was thrown into a lion's den. And every single time, the Lord delivered his faithful, persevering servant, Daniel. Daniel was also a humble man, who loved both his lord and his people and he prayed for them regularly and so as we come to Daniel chapter 9 what we see is Daniel praying for his people Daniel 9 starts in verse 2 with him reading the prophecy of Jeremiah in order to gain a more to gain more insight into the lord's plan and promise of during israel's captivity in 9 verse chapter 9 verse 2 we read this in the first year of Darius reign says uh, there's another name there but it's Darius I Daniel perceived in the books the number of years that according to the word of the Lord to Jeremiah the prophet must pass before the end of the desolations of Jerusalem namely 70 years so here's a literal promise that we will see is literally fulfilled So how did Daniel actually perceive that? How did he perceive this 70-year period? Well, Jeremiah actually spells it out quite clearly for us. For example, in Jeremiah chapter 25, we read this, I will send for all the tribes of the north and for Nebuchadnezzar, the king of Babylon, my servant, and I will bring them against this land, Judah, and its inhabitants, and against these surrounding nations and make them a horror, a hissing, and an everlasting desolation. That's the surrounding nations. This whole land, that's Judah, shall become a ruin and a waste. And these nations shall serve the king of Babylon 70 years. Then after 70 years are completed, I will punish the king of Babylon and that nation, the land of the Chaldeans, is another word for Babylonians, for their iniquity, declares the Lord, making the land an everlasting waste, meaning no more Babylon proper. And again, in Jeremiah chapter 29, where that famous coffee cup verse comes from, look at the context of it. Jeremiah 29, starting in verse 10, thus says the Lord, when 70 years are completed for Babylon, I will visit you, meaning Israel, I will fulfill to you my promise and bring you back to this place, for I know the plans I have for you, declares the Lord. Plans for your welfare and not for evil, to give you future and a hope. So why 70 years? Jeremiah makes it clear. It's going to be 70 years. Why 70 years? Why did Israel have to go into exile for that specific period of time, 70 years? That's also revealed by the Lord through Jeremiah. It all stems back to the command that God gave the nation back in Leviticus 25. There the Lord commanded the people, in Leviticus 25, verses 1 to 3, says this, When you come into the land that I give you, the land shall keep a Sabbath to the Lord. For six years you shall sow your field, and for six years you shall prune your vineyard and gather its fruits. But in the seventh year there shall be a Sabbath of solemn rest for the land." A Sabbath to the Lord, you shall not sow your field or prune your vineyard. Meaning the Lord commanded the nation of Israel that every seventh year the land was to be given a a year of rest. And during that year, the people were to keep themselves from cultivating the land, but the Lord promised them in Leviticus 25 verse 4 that the Sabbath of the land shall provide food for you. So don't go out and cultivate, but you are more than welcome to pick whatever grows naturally in that uncultivated, resting land during that Sabbath year. That would be enough to provide for you. And what was the penalty for Israel should they disobey this command to let the land rest for the Sabbath year? We are told in Leviticus 26. Leviticus 26.1 says, if you will not listen to me and will not do all of these commandments, then flip down to 33. I will scatter you among the nations. I will unsheathe the sword after you, and your land shall be a desolation, and your cities shall be a waste. Then the land land shall enjoy its Sabbaths, as long as it lies desolate. While you are in your enemy's land, then the land shall rest and enjoy its Sabbaths. As long as it lies desolate, it shall have rest, the rest that it did not have on your Sabbaths when you were dwelling in it. So for this reason... The Lord delivered the nation of Israel over to the Babylonian exile and they remained in that exile for 70 years, for the 70 Sabbath years that they refused to let the land rest. For the 70 Sabbath years Israel refused to observe, the Lord sent them into exile. And at that time, during that 70 years of exile, the land rested as the Lord intended as the Lord had commanded the nation to observe. And this is summed up nicely in 2 Chronicles, where we read that after Babylon took the Jews into exile, 2 Chronicles 36, 21 says, to fulfill the word of the Lord by the mouth of Jeremiah until the land had enjoyed its Sabbaths. All the days that it laid desolate, it kept Sabbath to fulfill 70 years. So as Daniel perceived all of this, and noting that Israel, by this time in Daniel chapter 9, had been in exile for 60 years already, he turned his face to the Lord in verse 3 and started to pray. It says, Daniel sought the Lord by prayer and pleas for mercy with fasting and sackcloth and ashes. And as Daniel prayed, the angel Gabriel came to him saying, in verse 22 and 23 of chapter 9, Daniel I have now come out to give you insight and understanding. At the beginning of your pleas for mercy, a word went out, and I have come to tell it to you, for you are greatly loved. Therefore, consider the word and understand the vision. So Gabriel appeared to Daniel in response to Daniel's prayers for God's mercy, both upon himself and upon the nation of Israel. And throughout his prayer, you see that Daniel understands that Israel is deserving of the righteous punishments that she is facing under the hand of God. But Gabriel here sets before Daniel a word, a prophetic announcement, a declaration so that Daniel might understand what is about to come. What the Lord's plan is for Israel from this point to the end of the age. And in one of the most important and the most clear of prophetic words in the Old Testament, we read this starting in verse 24. Look at it. Seventy weeks are decreed about your people and your holy city. To finish the transgression, to put an end to sin, to atone for iniquity, to bring in an everlasting righteousness, to seal both vision and prophet, and to anoint the most holy place. That's a pretty easy to break down verse, Right? The prophecy here refers to a span of 70 weeks. This is a Jewish phrase that speaks to uh, 70 sets of seven. And weeks, 70 sets of seven weeks, and in such context, the expression weeks refers to years. It's a Jewish way of teaching. We can see it, for example, in Leviticus chapter 25, verse 8. There we read, in reference to the year of Jubilee, Moses writes this, "...you shall count seven weeks of years." Seven times, 70, seven times seven years, so that the time of the seven weeks of years shall give you 49 years. It's a way of Hebrew thinking. right? So these weeks are designed as a shorthand for sets of years, sets periods of seven years. So Gabriel here decrees or reveals to Daniel that there will be 70 sets of seven years, or 490 years, that are decreed about your people and your holy city. You see that there in uh, 24? Your people... Your holy city. See, there are many who would like to lift or wrestle these prophecies from Israel and apply them to the spiritual Israel or the heavenly Jerusalem, but the wording here is actually quite clear and intentional. Your people, and remember the rule that we apply to the reading of Scripture, how would Daniel have understood that phrase, your people? Of course he would have understood it to mean his ethnic countrymen along with him in exile at that moment. And your holy city. How would Daniel have understood that phrase, your holy city? Of course he would have understood it to mean the literal city of Jerusalem. The term holy city is used to describe Jerusalem repeatedly throughout the Old and New Testaments and every time it refers to the actual literal city of Jerusalem. The only time it doesn't is when there are phrases like the new Jerusalem or the heavenly Jerusalem. This word from Gabriel to Daniel then is for the literal nation of Israel, Gabriel is revealing to Daniel what his plan is for them from this moment to the end of the age. At by or after the end of this 70 weeks, the Lord will accomplish will have accomplished six things in and for the nation of Israel. The first is he will finish the transgression. You see that phrase? He will finish the transgression. By the end of the 70th week, Israel's transgression will be finished. It will be concluded. It will be ended. This has not yet come to pass because Israel still lives in rebellion and transgression against the Lord. They have not returned to the Lord Jesus Christ for salvation. But this transgression will be halted when Christ returns to establish his millennial kingdom and on into the subsequent eternal kingdom. When he does this, it will finish. It will put an end to Israel's sin and disobedience as she returns to the Lord. Second, he will put an end to sin. So this is all, all six of these are in verse 24. Meaning, He'll end sin itself. Sin will be ended, which necessitates a new and redeemed order of things, which Christ will do when He ushers in the eternal kingdom. Third, He'll atone for iniquity, meaning to sprinkle, to cover the sin of His people. The wording alludes to a, the blood of a substitute who will fully and finally forgive them for their sin. Meaning, there is coming a day... When God will reconcile the nation to himself by one who will atone for, the sin, for their sin. And we know, as everyone sitting here today, that this person, this is accomplished in the person and work of our Lord Jesus Christ. And that we, right now, can lay hold of this forgiveness, lay hold of this atonement by grace through faith in the name of Jesus Christ, even right now at this very moment. Fourth, Bring in an everlasting righteousness. So at the end of the 70 weeks of seven, there will be an everlasting righteousness, meaning an eternal kingdom will be ushered in, one that lasts on into eternity future, where we will all be enjoying our Lord forever. The nation of Israel, along with the saints who believed during the time of the Gentiles, will permanently receive the kingdom, the promised kingdom that will be everlasting. We will enjoy our God forever and ever and ever. Fifth, to seal both vision and prophet. In other words, the picture is of a scroll being rolled up and sealed, ending all prophecy. Because the end, in the end, every single detail of God's word will be fulfilled. Every single detail will be fulfilled. This, scry, this scroll has not yet been rolled up because a number of promises that God has made to Israel are still outstanding. The scroll is still open. It has not been rolled up and sealed yet. But there will come a day when Messiah reigns and dwells with his people and all of the prophecies and promises of the Lord are fulfilled. There will no longer be any need for prophecy and visions and the scroll will be rolled up and sealed when the perfect, meaning the eternal kingdom of Christ, or is established. Sixth, there will be a, a most holy place, anoint a most holy place, meaning to consecrate a most holy place. This phrase occurs 39 times in the Old Testament, and in every instance, it refers either to the literal tabernacle, the literal temple, or the literal utensils used in the worship of the Lord in the literal temple or tabernacle, which seems to indicate the anointing of a future holy place. A temple, one reconstructed at the onset of the millennial reign, when the sacrificial system is reestablished. Now, some people have a, they're confused about this, right? Why would the sacrificial system need to be reestablished near the end of them, at the onset of the millennial reign? It's not for the purpose of forgiving sin or dealing with sin, because Christ has already atoned for sin. But it will be for repentant Jews a sign and a symbol to the nations of Christ's saving work. It will be a commemoration of everything Christ has done. It will be for them much the same as communion is for us. Gabriel continues his prophetic announcement after those six in verse 25. Look at it. Know therefore and understand that from the going out of the word to restore and build Jerusalem to the coming of an anointed one, a prince, there shall be seven weeks. Then for 62 weeks it shall be built again with squares and moat, but in a troubled time. So the Lord had already decreed the rebuilding of Jerusalem after its destruction by the Babylonians. And so, after seven weeks or 49 years, there would come an anointed one, a prince, who will initiate the call for the rebuilding of Jerusalem. We see this recorded in Ezra chapter 1, verse 1 and 2. In the first year Cyrus, king of Persia, that the word of the Lord by the mouth of Jeremiah might be fulfilled, the Lord stirred up the spirit of Cyrus, king of Persia, so that he made a proclamation throughout all his kingdom and put it in writing. Thus says the king of Persia, The Lord, the God of heaven, has given me all the kingdoms of the earth, and he has charged me to build him a house at Jerusalem, which is in Judah. And if you recall, the Lord called Cyrus, the king of Persia, his anointed one. Saying by the mouth of Isaiah in chapter 45, verse 1, the Lord Thus says the Lord to his anointed, to Cyrus, whose right hand I have grasped. So after Cyrus initiates and calls for the rebuilding of the temple in Jerusalem, then, verse 25 says, then for 62 weeks it shall be built again. 62 weeks and 7 weeks equals... 69 weeks. After 69 weeks, or roughly 482 or 3 years, verse 26 tells us, an anointed one shall be cut off and shall have nothing. Here's what's awesome about this, is that the timelines match up really nicely as the going out of the word to restore Jerusalem under Cyrus and the anointed one, the Lord Jesus Christ, being cut off, being crucified, is approximately... 69 weeks, 62 weeks. And after the anointed one is cut off, Gabriel continues in verse 26. And the people of the prince who is to come shall destroy the city and the sanctuary. So this is speaking of a different person than the anointed one who is cut off. There is coming a prince. So after the death of the anointed one, the Lord Jesus Christ, as Jesus himself prophesied, the rebuilt Jerusalem and temple will once again be destroyed by the prince who is to come, as prophesied by Daniel. And we know that in A.D. 70, when General Titus descended upon Jerusalem and destroyed it, leaving no stone on another, as Jesus said, this very Titus was the son of then Emperor, Roman Emperor Vespasian. Meaning that he was legitimately, literally, really a prince. And he destroyed the city and the sanctuary in the timeline revealed by Gabriel to Daniel. Its end shall come with a flood, and in the end there shall be war. Desolations are decreed. This flood means not a flood of water, but a flood of armies that take over the city. When Christ told his disciples that not one stone would be left upon another, all Jesus did was simply quote, albeit in different words, the very desolations that the Lord had already revealed to Daniel almost five centuries earlier. Now, when you look at this prophecy straight on, it can seem like there are a bunch of peaks on the same mountain. But if you notice, when you look at it from the side view, there is a break made between the first 69 weeks of Daniel's prophecy and the 70th week. You notice that. In the 70th week, according to verse 27, we read this. He shall make a strong covenant with many for one week. And for half the week he shall put an end to sacrifice and offering. And on the wing of abomination shall come one who makes desolate until the decreed end is poured out on the desolator. So the 69 weeks have, historically speaking, been fulfilled. At the first coming of Christ, who was cut off to save his people from their sin, along with the destruction of the temple in A.D. 70. But as Jesus told his disciples, there is an unexpected interval or interlude between the 69th week and the 70th week. The times of the Gentiles that we spoke of earlier. And at the end of these times, at the end of this time of the Gentiles, Paul wrote in his first letter to the Thessalonians that at the end of this times, the Lord himself will descend from heaven with a cry of command. With the voice of an archangel, with the sound of the trumpet of God, and the dead in Christ will rise first, and we who are alive, we who are left, will be caught up in the air with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air, so we will always be with the Lord. In other words, the church, Christians all over the world, will be removed from the earth, and this will commence the 70th week. This won't happen like the Left Behind series tell you. It's not going to be a bunch of folded clothes and crashing airplanes and secret people, people secretly disappearing. Because if you look at the text, it says, there will be a cry of command, the voice of an archangel, the sound of a trumpet. Meaning, it's going to be pretty noticeable. I actually like to think that all of us who are alive will go up to heaven in the same way that everyone who has gone up to heaven without dying has in the in the past, like Enoch and Elijah in visible chariots of fire. That would be super cool. <laughs> but these seven years of God's, this will commence the 70th week when the church is removed from the world and God resumes his plan for Israel in this seventh week. It is during this seven-year period will, that will, the one described by the Apostle Paul comes as he wrote in 2 Thessalonians chapter 2. The man of lawlessness, the son of destruction, who opposes and exalts himself against every so called God or object of worship, so that he takes his seat in the temple of God, proclaiming himself to be God. Jesus tells us watch out for this future abomination of desolation. The one Paul describes as the man of lawlessness, the one who enters the temple of God, sits in it, and proclaims himself to be God. See, Jesus is warning them, be on the lookout for this abomination, this filthy, abhorrent, and loathsome idolatry, this violation of God's command not to make for yourself any image or of any likeness of anything in heaven above or in the earth below, because it is an abomination, according to Exodus 20, verse 5, to bow down to anything other than God to serve it. This abomination refers to something idolatrous, disgusting, and odious to the people of God. And the word desolation, is that it means that which destroys, lays waste, devastates, or astonishes the people. Something so terrible that people are left speechless. And Jesus told the disciples that if it's you, if you see the abomination of desolation that stands in the holy place, flee, flee the city to the mountains of Judea. This abomination, this man of lawlessness, will exalt himself when he enters the holy place in the temple. And according to Daniel 9, verse 27, he will establish a, look at it, strong covenant with the many for one week. Now, a straightforward reading of Daniel reveals that a few things are still to come for Israel in the future. First, there is some prince. Now, we're not going to name names. We're not going to apply it to anyone. We don't know who this is. Hasn't been revealed to us yet. Far too much time is spent speculating on the identity of this prince, the identity of this man of lawlessness. But I won't. What we can see from the text is this. There is some prince to come who will make a covenant, a deal, a treaty with the nation of Israel. You see it. This covenant will be for one week, meaning the 70th week, a period of seven years. And look at the text halfway through the covenant. Right? You see that there, right? For half the week he shall put an end to the sacrifice and offerings. Meaning halfway through the covenant, this prince, whoever he is, violates the terms of the agreement and ends the sacrifices that had been reestablished in the temple. Four, the prince who is to come will then desecrate the temple or set up what Daniel calls, or what Gabriel calls, the abomination of or the, uh, the abomination that makes desolate. Some sort of idol, some sort of sacrilege therein. For us, we know it's the man of lawlessness spoken of by the Apostle Paul. The days of this abomination, until the Lord returns to judge the ruler, Daniel says, are 1290 days. You can see that in Daniel chapter 12, verse 11. There'll be 1290 days, or three and a half years. Daniel 12, 11 says, And from the time that the regular burnt offering is taken away and the abomination that makes desolate is set up, there shall be 1,290 days. So Jesus here warns the disciples when the nation of Israel aligns itself in a covenant with this strong man of lawlessness who is to come. When you see such signs as these coming to pass, When this abomination of desolation has come, then for all of you in the city of Jerusalem, flee to the mountains because the devastating judgments of God are about to rain down. Matthew 24, 21 tells us, Such as not been from the beginning of the world until now, no and never will be. This is how devastating these tribulations will be. But at the end of the 70th week, at the end of this seven-year period of tribulation, the Lord, according to Daniel, will pour out His decreed end on the desolator. You see that in verse 27? Pour out His decreed end on the desolator. And as this happens, boom! The Lord Jesus Christ returns into the clouds to crush all rebellion and establish His millennial kingdom on earth. In closing... Sometimes people ask me, what benefit is there? Like, you just spent an hour (laughs) talking about all of this. Now, what benefit is there to talking about this? What benefit is there to learning any of this? If you're one of those, I would like to encourage you with a couple of things. As I was studying this and writing this, I felt my spirit rising as I watched God unfold His plan in history as I saw God speaking to Daniel through the angel Gabriel and then looking at how all of that unfolded in history, revealing to me just how firmly God has the history of creation in his hands. How encouraging is it to see how God's words and how God's prophecies have and are working themselves out in real time, and what comfort and confidence does that give to you, who are the children of God? The times that Gabriel spoke to Daniel have so clearly and wonderfully come to pass as spoken centuries beforehand. And now as you watch the global events unfold, you know that God has already revealed how it's all going to happen. You know where it all ends, with us. His people, Jew or Gentile, by His side, enjoying Him forever because He has, in the end, put down and crushed all opposition. So may God be glorified by all of us who upon hearing His works in history and knowing His works to come, rest in His unstoppable power, in His unassailable wisdom, in his glorious grace and compassion upon all of you who love his name and have called out to him for salvation in our Lord and Savior, the Anointed One, who was cut off for our sake. May he be glorified as you are resting confident in him, the God who oversees everything. Father, we thank you for your word, and uh, Lord, we know that these are difficult subjects But you don't put things in your word because we don't need to hear them. You put them in your word so that we might learn them, grow as a result of them, be encouraged and exhorted by them. So, Father, as we've revealed a number of ways in which you are shown to be in control of all things, you are sovereign over all things, that you are working all things out according to the plan that you have revealed and spoken, may we have confidence in this very fact That your word never returns void it always accomplishes what it sets out to do so father as we sit here as your people this morning we can be confident in your promise that you have gone to prepare for us a place and that you will return one day to take us to be with you where you are and we know this because we know you are a God who fulfills his word We thank you for this in his name, in Christ's name. Amen.